Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSillaCast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, May 5th, 2019, and this is show number 730. Well, next week's show is going to be a special one. We're going to be celebrating 14 years of the NoSillaCast. If you're a new listener or a new listener of podcasts in general, I want to tell you, that's really, really old for a podcast. You see, podcasting was only invented in October of 2004, and I started on May 13th of 2005. Now, we're not going to be having a big party, you know, because it's not like it's 15 years. But if you want to bring a beverage, make a toast or two, Steve and I would love to see you in the live chat room at podfeet.com slash live on Sunday, May 12th at 5 p.m. Pacific time. You can wear a party hat if you want to. I had great fun in this week's episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond, playing with Bart Bouchats and Programming by Stealth. We're on installment 77, and in this lesson, he stepped back to really cement the concept of callbacks. This came about because I confessed to a midweek that while I'd been hearing the term for literally years in Programming by Stealth, I didn't really understand what a callback was. He decided to go over the topic with several examples, even showing how we've been using callbacks all along, but not specifically referring to them as callbacks. I was lost for a bit at the beginning, but he patiently went over each example until, as he says, the penny dropped for me. After that, he went through the homework challenge from installment 76. You see, in 76, he told us that he was going to put us through what's called in programming language, callback hell. I'm not swearing, I'm quoting, that's the real words they call it. He told us that there was a way to avoid callback hell, but he wanted us to experience the agony first. Well, when I went to do my homework for last week, I quickly found the way to avoid callback hell, and I ran with it. I was really proud of myself for getting the homework done and not going through hell. Now, he did love that I jumped so far ahead. In fact, I jumped uh, two lessons ahead. But as I put it back to him, skipping callback hell was kind of like not really facing death in the Kobayashi Maru. I had so much fun doing the homework and I got done early enough that I actually went back and did did it the hard way and I still succeeded. I made it through callback hell. I am very proud of my little self if you can't tell. Anyway, you can listen to this episode of Programming by Stealth in your podcasting tool of choice under Programming by Stealth or under the Chit Chat Across the Pond feed. And of course, you can listen right at podfeed.com and look for episode number 592. Last year, I wrote a post entitled, Can a Portable Battery Charge a Large Laptop? My goal was to see if there were any chargers that could actually charge a 15-inch MacBook Pro. At the time, I tested two batteries that had AC outlets on them, the Jackery Power Bar and the Rav Power RPPB055. What a great name. We're going to call that Rav Power. The post was filled with glorious math and electrical engineering, so it was great fun, at least for me. Well, fast forward to January of this year, when Steve and I interviewed Eric Matheson from OmniCharge about their power banks. I was intrigued by what I saw, and as a result, I recently purchased their Omni 20 USB-C charger for $169. We're going to talk today about how this new hotness compares with the chargers I tested last year. I promise I won't go through all of the math, but there's a few very salient points of comparison. The two power banks I reviewed last year had, as I said, AC outlets, which is exactly what I thought I wanted in order to charge a laptop. But what we learned is that there's around 15 to 20% loss of efficiency when you convert from AC to DC. This means that the batteries themselves have to be significantly larger than the batteries in our laptops 
to fully charge those laptops. For example, the 15-inch MacBook Pro battery has a capacity of 83.6 watt-hours. So even the 99.5 watt-hour RAV Power could only charge the Mac to 90%. All of that extra battery means the power bank was larger and heavier just to make up for the loss in efficiency. The new power banks from Omni use USB-C charging with the new power delivery spec, often abbreviated to PD. So if you see PD, that's a good thing. This means that they're able to size the power bank closer to one-to-one with the laptop battery that you're trying to charge. The Omni Power Bank 20 has, I'm sorry, the Omni 20 Power Bank has a capacity of 72.3 watt hours, which means it should be able to charge the 15-inch MacBook Pro to 86%, pretty close to the RAV power from before. However, the Omni Power Bank is far smaller and lighter. The Omni 20 Power Bank weighs 57% of what the RAV power weighed. It only weighs 1.1 pound versus the 1.9 pounds of the RAV power. I've been carrying the RAV Power with me on all trips, and I will be delighted to reduce the weight of that monster. But that's not all. To charge the RAV Power, I also had to carry a long power cord with a very large transformer, essentially like the size of an old PC laptop charger. That was more extra weight and extra volume that I will not miss. Now, the volume is, of course, commensurately smaller as well. The Omni 20 power bank is a svelte 5 by 4.8 inches by 1.1 inches thick. The RAV power, in contrast, was 5.3 by 6.9 by 1.4 inches, not counting that giant power supply. That makes the Omni 20 power bank only 52% of the size of the RAV power. And did I mention that giant power supply for the RAV power? Okay, so the Omni 20 power bank is small and light, but what else can it do? Well, a lot. The Omni 20 sports two USB-C power delivery ports and two high-speed 5-volt 3-amp USB-A ports. And wait for it, it also supports 10 watts of wireless charging for your phone. You can just slap your Qi-compatible phone right down on top of it to charge. The total combined maximum output for the Omni 20 power bank is 100 watts. But wait, that's still not all. The Omni 20 can also act as a file transfer hub. You can plug your USB-C-enabled laptop into the Omni 20 and then plug three other devices into the USB-C and USB-A ports and transfer files back and forth to the laptop. Now, you might already be sold on the Omni 20, but if not, its informative LED display will push you over the edge. Where the other chargers had, you know, maybe a couple of indicator lights if you're lucky, the Omni 20 will give you way more information than you probably need. The OmniCharge website has a picture of an LED display with uh, that doesn't quite match up with what I actually see on mine, but it's still a plethora of data. There's a little battery symbol graphically showing you what's left, but also the numerical percentage left. It shows the input wattage to the battery when you're charging it, and it shows how, much, how many watts it's supplying to your devices. The USB-C power delivery ports will supply up to 60 watts, which is less than the 15-inch MacBook Pro can drink, likes around 85, but it just means it'll take longer to charge. With it connected to my 15-inch, I could see on the LED display that the Omni 20 was supplying the promised 60 watts. Now remember, I said it could shell out 100 watts. Well, I tried laying my iPhone on top of the wireless charger while it was also charging my Mac, and I saw the power being delivered climb to 66.2 watts. So you really can start adding these things up. 
I plugged an SSD backup drive into the Omni 20. It didn't need very much power. And I did see that it mounted on my desktop, so I verified I can charge my Mac and use the Omni 20 as a hub at the same time while still using it as a wireless charger for my phone. I've mentioned, I think, a half a dozen times so far how annoying the big charger block is for the RAV Power, but I haven't explained how you charge the Omni 20. Well, turns out they don't give you a charger at all. I don't know if I completely like that, but I think they assume that if you have devices that can charge over USB-C, you must already have a USB-C charger. Why do you need another one? Now, they do include a 20-inch USB-C to USB-A cable and a 12-inch USB-C to USB-C cable. Now, the specs online say the input on the Omni 20 is 45 watts, and you should be able to charge it from 0 to 100% in three hours. Now, I always worry about using a charger that's too high or too low of power, but in the tech specs for the Omni 20, it says they have power overflow protection, as well as voltage underflow and overflow protection, and charging circuit protection. I tested charging the Omni 20 using my 87-watt MacBook Pro charger. Remember, they said it wants 45 watts, and uh, it charged the Omni 20 in an hour and a half. It went from 0 to 95%. I sure hope that overflow charging protection is kicking into gear because it charged double the promised speed with my big girl charger. Now, if I were a good little engineer, like I keep claiming I am, I would have done exhaustive testing of the charging capabilities of the Omni 20 with every single configuration available, but I did not. Instead, I did one really mean test to the Omni 20. The specs indicate that I should be able to charge my 15-inch MacBook Pro to, uh, you know, 86%, roughly 90 but that assumes that I'm not using it when I do that. Well, let's try to figure out when is Allison not using her computer and is able to sit and watch a charger meter to take down data. That's never going to happen. So instead, I decided to see how well the Omni 20 could charge the 15-inch MacBook Pro while I was actually using it. That's a much better real-world test for me because I'm more likely to be somewhere running out of battery while I want to keep playing on my laptop than I am to have a dead laptop that I can ignore for a couple of hours. I ran my max battery down to 6% using Parallels Toolbox Do Not Sleep app while I took my dog for a walk. Then I started writing this review while letting the Omni 20 see whether it could actually add power while I was working. I'm pleased to say that in one hour and five minutes, the Omni 20 charged my 15-inch MacBook Pro from 6% to 56% while I was using it. In that time, the Omni 20 drained itself from 98% to 13%. I think that's pretty amazing. Remember, it weighs half of what the other battery did. With the Omni 20, I now have a power bank with essentially the same charging capability as the RAV Power, but at half the weight and half the volume. I gained wireless charging and a terrific display that will keep me informed on charge levels. I also gained a USB hub as a bonus prize, and my tests show I can now charge my Mac while using it up to 50%, and I would presume up to 90% if I wasn't using it. I love the RAV Power for the charging it did of my devices on travel for the last year, but I have a new love in my life, and it's the Omni 20 Power Bank from OmniCharge.co. My only regret is that while OmniCharge does sell some of their power banks through Amazon, they do not list the Omni 20 on Amazon, so I can't give you an affiliate link. Steve and I have been doing quite a bit of traveling lately, which has caused us to be away from home on a Sunday night when I need to, or actually really want to, record the live NoSillaCast. It really complicates things to do a live show on the road. 
But Steve and I just love the live audience so much, we don't want to disappoint them, and we don't want to miss it ourselves. We look forward to their silly banter, like Frank just now, when I talked about how I had my uh, second eye surgery. He asked me about my third eye. Anyway, they say ridiculous things like that. But I also do really rely on them to remind me to save, add chapter marks. Thanks, Kevin. And then they tell me when I say things incorrectly. You'd be surprised how many dumb things you never hear in the podcast because of their help. I mean, you'd be surprised because you still hear dumb things from time to time, but there'd be way more if it wasn't for the uh, the live audience. I remember the time I got my daughter Lindsay's name wrong, but we try not to talk about the Great Martini episode anymore. Anyway, Steve and I carry a lot of equipment with us to make this happen when we travel on the road and do the live show. I'll start with Steve's setup, which is less complicated, but it's still a bit of a haul. At home, he's got a 27-inch iMac with a 27-inch Apple Cinema display as his second monitor. So he's got lots of room to stretch out as he runs our video switching software, Mimo Live, from Boinks. When we go out on the road, he uses his 13-inch MacBook Pro instead of the 27-inch iMac, so he also doesn't have the second display. So that's obviously not enough screen real estate to do everything he needs to do. In order to stream live to YouTube, he has to log in twice. He logs in once as me in one browser in order to enable the live stream, and then once as himself in a second browser to verify that the stream is actually working. He's taken to carrying my first-gen 12-inch MacBook to log into YouTube as me. He also logs into Discord on the 12-inch MacBook, and that lets him chat with a live audience without taking up screen real estate on his 13-inch MacBook Pro. But we also run our audio into Discord. So if it's separately on the 12-inch MacBook, that means his audio isn't going into Discord on the MacBook. That isn't going to work. So he actually logs himself in a second time on his 13-inch MacBook Pro, and he only runs his audio into there and leaves the window hidden under everything else he has running. Remember I said his setup was less complex than mine. I didn't even know that's what he was doing. It's kind of an ingenious way to do it to log in twice. When he's at home, he uses a Heil PR20 mic for audio, but on travel, he carries the Samsung Meteor mic, which is a very durable travel mic with surprisingly good audio for a $54 mic. Amazon affiliate link in the show notes, by the way. Anyway, he sometimes brings his webcam, but the complications with that outweigh the value, so he often just goes with his internal eyesight camera on his MacBook Pro. We have found through experience that using the wired Ethernet, that using wired Ethernet is much more reliable than Wi-Fi, even great Wi-Fi like at Lindsay's house. So an Ethernet cable and a USB-C to Ethernet adapter always has to be in his travel bag. Now, let's switch gears to what I have to do. At home, I've got my lovely CalDigit TS3 Plus Thunderbolt 3 dock that allows me to run all of my equipment through a single Thunderbolt cable to my MacBook Pro. To do the live show on the road, the following all have to be contacted, connected directly to my MacBook Pro without the CalDigit. I've got a Logitech C920 webcam, that's $78 on Amazon, an Audio-Technica ATR2100 USB or XLR microphone, $68 on Amazon. I've got my over-the-ear headphones, which are actually a very, very old pair of Bose that I bought. I've got the Luna Display USB-C adapter that allows the iPad to act as a display. I've got a 12.9-inch iPad Pro running Luna Display to act as my spare display where I drag in Discord so I can chat and still have my audio come through to the audience. Never occurred to me to log in twice. Anyway, I've got an iPad Mini that runs Mimo Call, which is a control pad for Mimo Live. 
Its greatest function is I can mute Steve with it, but I can also switch the video to be my entire desktop and a couple of other functions. Now, the Mini doesn't need to be connected to the Mac, but for completeness, completeness, I included it in the list. I also need an Ethernet cable for the best possible video experience for the viewers and USB-C adapters for USB-A and Ethernet. That's all I have to carry with me. So now, here's the problem to be solved of this long article. I'm finally getting to it. Even with the full flexibility of the 15-inch MacBook Pro with four USB-C Thunderbolt 3 ports, I can't plug all of that in and have the ability to keep my MacBook Pro charged at the same time. I am short exactly one port. Now, I have a small USB-C hub that I bought way back when I got the first-gen USB-C 12-inch MacBook. I bought that just for the SD card slot for my big girl camera, but it also gave me two USB-A ports. Unfortunately, that wasn't quite enough to solve today's problems. While it did have those two USB-A ports on it and passed through USB-C for power, it was just big enough that it partially covered up the USB-C port next to it, so I didn't actually gain a port if I used it. Plus, a few weeks ago, the edge of it caught on some fabric and ripped the whole side of it open. Other than that, it was great. Well, I started thinking I might have to start carrying my CalDigit dock with me, but even though it's the smallest dock of all the ones I tested, it would be quite a hassle to disassemble everything and put it back together when I arrived back home. I was pretty sure I needed a travel hub. Clearly, this was a job for research assistant Stephen Getz to choose one for me. I told him all of my requirements, and he set to work. He seems to actually enjoy spending my money this way. The hub he chose for me is the HyperDrive 8-in-1 USB-C hub for $99 on Amazon. I know that's a lot of money for a USB-C hub, but maybe you don't need this many ports, but, you know, I sure do. Hyper makes a lot of different USB-C hubs, so if this one is overkill for you, you might still be interested in my experiences with the device and with the company. My old and busted hub I used before had the advantage of sticking to the side of the Mac rather than dangling, but I never really felt it was that secure of a connection. The HyperDrive hub is 4.5 inches long, 2 inches wide, and a half an inch thick, and connects to the Mac with a built-in USB-C cable rather than sticking to the side. Now, while it's bigger than many hubs, listen to the port listing it has. Two USB-A 3.1 ports, so high speed, USB-C power delivery, SD and micro SD slots. It's got HDMI that supports 4K displays at 30 hertz. It's also got a 10 gigabit per second USB-C to support 4K video at 60 hertz. It's got 49 watts pass-through power delivery. That's through the same USB-C port that uh, carries the 4K video. It's got mini display port and gigabit ethernet. Now that's quite a lot to pack into a hub the size of the palm of your hand. As I mentioned, it is a bit bigger than some hubs, but they actually did something ingenious to make it as thin as it is. The Ethernet port is on the end of the hub, but an Ethernet connector is actually too thick to fit into a half-inch thick hub. The folks at Hyper created a little pop-up that expands the thickness just enough to accommodate that little clip that you press to disengage the Ethernet cable. Looks a little odd with it sticking up, but it works and keeps the hub nice and slim. You can even hear it click. Isn't that exciting? Anyway, I'm thrilled that Apple have gone with USB-C for both the laptops and iPads Pro, because a hub like this will actually work for both of my devices. Well, I don't actually need to do that for the live show. It doesn't have anything to do with the live show. The problem this might solve is the need to carry an Apple TV on travel if we want to watch something like, say, Netflix in a hotel. 
If we can get access to the HDMI port, which is not always guaranteed, we've seen them purposely put a cover over the HDMI port, which was infuriating, then we could use my iPad Pro to display to the TV. I tested the 12.9-inch iPad Pro connected to the TV in my den via HDMI with a hyperdrive hub, and it worked a champ. On my Mac, I don't really need HDMI or mini DisplayPort. In fact, I would have bought the hub without it, but I thought I'd test it out anyway. I plugged the HyperDrive 8-in-1 hub into my MacBook Pro, and I tested it, plugging it into the same TV via HDMI, and it worked great. Then I thought it would be fun to do a dry run of my live show setup. I wanted to plug everything into the HyperDrive USB-C hub to simulate my environment on the road. Using the HyperDrive hub, I plugged in my webcam and travel mic via USB-A. The Luna display cannot be used with a hub, so it took a priority spot on USB-C directly connected to the MacBook Pro in order to drive the 12.9-inch iPad Pro as a second monitor. I used the hub to run pass-through power to my Mac and connected Ethernet to the hub as well. For grins and giggles, I threw an SD card into the hub as well, and everything worked. As I said, I haven't used an external monitor on the road for my live show, but often there's actually been one available. When I did the live show from Sydney's desk a few weeks ago, there was an HDMI display right there that I would have loved to have used. I wanted to test the capability with the HyperDrive hub. I dragged an old Dell monitor out of the closet and I connected it via HDMI to my Mac through the HyperDrive hub. But that's when things went awry. The Dell display did not show my Mac desktop, but rather was solid lime green. This was definitely not expected behavior, but that meant it was time for some experimenting. I started looking at the display settings and system preferences. The Dell monitor was clearly recognized by the system. I could see the model number. I could even rearrange the display locations. I tried mirroring the displays, and for a brief second, the Dell showed the Mac desktop perfectly mirrored, but then it went back to solid green. Now, I had successfully used the HyperDrive Hub to connect an iPad to a TV, so I tried eliminating all other variables, and I connected the Dell monitor to the iPad with the HyperDrive Hub. Same result, solid green. I then tried the MacBook Pro connected to the TV I'd used earlier with the iPad, trying it again, and it was again able to successfully display using the HyperDrive Hub. I started thinking maybe something was wrong with the Dell monitor if both the Mac and iPad could display to the TV in my den, but couldn't display to the Dell. I needed a way to definitively rule out either the hub or the display as the root cause of the problem. I have a dedicated USB-C to HDMI adapter made by Slimport, so I connected the Dell to my Mac using that adapter, and it worked. No green screen. All right, let's recap our experiments. Failure. Mac to Hyper to Dell. Failure, iPad to Hyper to Dell. Success, Mac to Slimport to Dell. Success, Mac to Hyper to TV. Success, iPad to Hyper to TV. So, it's not the hub, because it works on the TV, and it's not the monitor, because it works with the Slimport adapter. And it's not the Mac, because the same behavior happens with the iPad. It seemed I'd eliminated every possible root cause. It was time to enlist the help of HyperDrive support. I sent a detailed report to HyperDrive, and just four hours later, my little friend Joseph wrote back with four questions and suggestions. He asked, are you using any form of adapter to plug in the HDMI to your monitor? Because that's not going to work. Number two, is the cable length more than six feet, two meters? If it is, there may be some signal distortion. Number three, have you tried manually detecting the display through settings? 
He said, if not, go to Settings Display. Once there, hold down the Option key. You'll see the option for Gather Windows turn into Detect. Well, sorry, Gather Windows will turn into Detect Displays. Click that and see if it fixes the issue. I did not know that secret option trick. Finally, he said it might be time to do a System Management Controller or SMC reset and an NVRAM reset, and then repeat the SMC reset if the NVRAM reset didn't work. So, I wasn't using an adapter, but my cable was actually 10 and a half feet long. He said six feet. I swapped it out for a shorter cable and huzzah! The Dell worked with the hyperdrive hub to the Mac. No green screen. I was so excited, I dragged Steve in to show it to him. He loves a good electromagnetic interference problem more than just about anyone. Well, I showed him how it didn't work with the 10 and a half foot cable first, and then I plugged in the shorter cable, and I was back to the green screen. What is going on? All right, I did the SMC reset and the NVRAM reset, but that didn't fix the problem. Now, the good news is that for about three months, my Apple Watch hasn't been unlocking my Mac. For, so uh, after the two resets, it started working again. Better remember that trick for the next time it stops working. Anyway, at this point, I came up with another experiment. I took my Mac into yet another room where I have a Mac Mini set up as a Plex server and a ChronoSync machine to back up my Drobo to another Drobo. The Mac Mini has my old 27-inch Apple Cinema Display connected to it, and I wanted to test the Mini Display Port on it using the Hyperdrive Hub to my laptop. It worked perfectly. It would seem that the Hyperdrive has no problem sending video signals. Joseph and I had been trading emails for a while by this time, and I have to admit that he was way more responsive than I was. I mean, I would write, and he would write back right away. I kind of dragged my feet for a while. And my excuse was I had my second cataract eye surgery, and then I had to clean the garage and vacuum the cat. You know how those things go. Anyway, he and I were both beginning to think there was something wrong with the HDMI port on the hub. He said he could swap it out, and he'd be really curious to test it himself on a deli had in-house if we got to that point. But then I did one more thing. I actually got out a pull-out rule, and I measured the length of the shorter cable I dug out. Previously, I just kind of held it off off the ground and went, yeah, it's about six feet. Well, turns out it was 81 inches long, which is six feet, nine inches. I knew that all of my experiments to the TV had worked with the hyperdrive hub, so I cannibalized that HDMI cable from the TV. The first, this time I measured it before I started, and it was 71 inches long, just one inch shorter than Joseph's no longer than six feet rule. Guess what? When I hooked up the Dell using the 71-inch HDMI cable with the hyperdrive hub, the Dell showed me my Mac desktop, no green screen. Not only did it work the first time, but it worked even when I called in Steve to demonstrate. Emboldened by my newfound success, I decided to push the limits on the hyperdrive hub. I hooked my Mac up to my CalDigit TS3 Plus dock. I've got an LG 5K display connected to the dock via Thunderbolt back to my Mac. Then I used the HyperDrive Travel Dock to run the Dell as an HDMI display into USB-C on my Mac. It worked flawlessly. I added in the camera and the microphone and the Luna display and an SD card, and I had a perfectly functioning system. The bottom line is that for $100, the HyperDrive 8-in-1 USB-C hub packs a lot of capability into the palm of your hand. The build quality is great. The number of ports, and more importantly, the number of useful ports is perfect for me. I do have to say that the hub may be more sensitive to signal distortion in long cables than the Slimport HDMI adapter, but that adapter doesn't help me solve my roadshow problem. I only tested the Slimport once with that long cable, 
It's altogether possible that if I repeated the test, especially with Steve watching, it would have still called a fail- caused a failure. I could repeat those experiments, but you know, I am really tired of dragging that monitor out of the closet. Equally important to the quality and usefulness of the Hyperdrive Hub is that the support from Hyperdrive was extraordinarily good. Joseph gets an A-plus for support in my book. He understood the description of my problem. He stated clear questions to me. He provided clear instructions to attempt to fix the problem, and he provided the correct solution. The only failure in the whole thing was me not actually measuring the cable. This week, we had not one, but two people decide that they get enough value out of the shows we produce at the Podfeed podcast that they would dedicate some of their hard-earned dollars to support us through Patreon. I'd like to make a special shout-out to Greg Hatfield and Dave Ginsburg for their patronage. The cool thing about Patreon is how easy it is to control how much money you spend. You can set a per-show amount, but also a limit per month. That way you can contribute to a bunch of shows, but still add a cap to the total. You are in complete control. That's a little weird from the podcaster's side because the pledged amount isn't ever what we really get, but I think it still is a much better way because you're the boss, right? Anyway, if you'd like to show the value you get from the shows, please consider going to podfeet.com slash Patreon and see if it's right for you. We now return you to your regularly scheduled program. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Bouchats. And Bart has sent me four or is it five versions of the show notes so far this week? <laughs> yeah, the, the news, the, it didn't stop. <laughs> well, I was, I, after the first three, I said, you know, what? I'm going to wait till right before the show. And sure enough, there was another one right before the show. Yeah, well, I also I sort of send them to you as a sort of a sneaky backup. Yeah. <laughs> so there's definitely another copy if you have it too. Oh, that's good. That's good. Well, it looks like uh, you said you've got we've got some nice chewy mediums, and I love the chewy mediums. Those are my favorites. Yeah, we've we've three chewy mediums, and then not actually that many uh, main stories, and then a few things and suggested reading to point you out, and three whole palate cleansers to end with. Oh wow! Okay, yeah. great. So before we get stuck into new stuff, it's just a few follow-ups of stories that we've talked about before. So the first of these is a long-running story. Do you remember Marcus Hutchins? Hmm. Doesn't ring a bell. He briefly shot to fame as the young British security researcher who killed WannaCry by registering the appropriate domain name, which was the kill switch. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. What they do and then, <laughs> then, yeah, I was going to say, and then he came to the US to give a talk at a security conference, I think it was DEF CON, and he got arrested for being a cyber criminal. Right, 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 right. Which was very controversial, and everyone was really cranky at the American authorities until everyone sort of slowly realized that, oh, hang on, he was a black hat. Now he's turned a new leaf, but the statute of limitations hasn't expired on his um, foibles. Oh. So he has now pleaded guilty. To probably wise to doing what to uh, writing and distributing banking malware. <laughs> okay, so he's turned a new leaf, but not long enough ago. Yes, and the, 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 I guess the good news is that all of the stuff he pleaded guilty to was all before the one and cry stuff. So, since he's been a constructive member of the IT society, he, he, it's not that he was being two faced. While he was being a good guy, he was actually being a good guy. But unfortunately, his prehistory has caught up with him. He mm-hmm. hasn't been sentenced yet, but I, I think the hope is 
it should be a lenient sentence given, you know, what he's done since. Right. And so he I didn't start being a good guy when he got caught. He turned into a good guy before he got caught for being a bad guy. Exactly. Exactly. Which definitely, you know, a, a non-forced conversion definitely helps. <laughs> Not just you got religion when you were in prison, right? Exactly. So, you know, there's one more shoe to drop on this one, but we've gotten as far as a guilty plea. So that that puts a bit more clarity on, on what happened. And oh, okay. the only thing not clear now is the sentence. But what fun is that? We don't get to be as outraged at the government. I know. Isn't it terrible? Yeah. Dang it. They were working, our, <laughs> we were working in our best interests. We're not used to that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we talked last time about Facebook's really terrible policy. Okay, the time before last, we talked about Facebook's terrible policy of uh, preemptively, of, of making people give their username and password for their email address to yeah. quote unquote prove their identity. Yeah. And then the second shoe dropped on that the last time around when they, it turns out that they were quote unquote inadvertently hoovering up their address book while they were at it. Uh. Well, it looks like there might be some consequences to that. The New York uh, Attorney General has decided that's worth investigating. So they have launched an investigation and we shall see where that leads to. Oh, yeah. She's um, she's I cool. Like yeah, I like her a lot. I've seen her on TV. She's uh, she's uh, taken names. Yeah, I can't remember whether it was Kara Swisher on Rico Decode or whether it was Fresh Air. But I recently heard an interview with her on one of those shows that goes deep. Oh, yeah. And she was a great guest. Wow. She was, yeah, I, I was very, I hadn't come across her before until I heard her interviewed. And I was like, I, you're intelligent. I, oh, I like you a lot. She, no, she really impressed me. We, we anyway. should, we shouldn't be surprised, but uh, yeah, I'll tell you some more stuff about her later, but yeah, she's, she's very cool. Excellent. And then um, some bad news. We talked last time as well about the fact that there had been an issue with Microsoft's non-Office 365 email services, so their Hotmail and Outlook.com. And it now turns out that the, those compromised accounts have been abused to steal cryptocurrency, unfortunately. Mm. So that's a bit of an issue. But yes, is that, they're, in, they're a, is that in the list of things we can't do anything about? Well, it's too late now. The, the, the horse is bolted. <laughs> yeah, two years ago, change your email. Well, no, because it, it, basically what it allowed the attackers to do was to see people's emails. I don't think it actually gave them their password. It just made it possible to see people's emails who you shouldn't be able to see. So that means that you could get you 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 could see verification emails even though you didn't get them. Oh, nice. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're not good. So our first security medium, I don't know how much of this kerfuffle made it into your radar, but many parts of the internet went very, very wild over third-party parental control apps on iOS and some changes that were happening there. Yeah, I'll be real curious to hear your take on this because I've heard okay. differing views. Well, I'm just going to start by explaining what was happening, what Apple did, and where we stand now, and then I'll get to the controversy because, yeah, we'll just do it that way, right? We'll start okay. with the facts and the important stuff, and then we'll get to the... <laughs> then we'll pontificate in it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, to castigate more than pontificate, I think. Um, so we, it's not long ago since we had a discussion about the dangers of combining a feature designed for use within an enterprise with consumer software. 
specifically, we're talking about Facebook and Google's analytics apps and their euphemisms, spying apps and everyone else's euphemisms. Mm -hmm. So they were using the enterprise developer program to basically give themselves superpower on these people's personal devices and hoover up some information at the very least with the potential to hoover up an insane amount of stuff. Was that when they were using profiles? Yes, exactly. So the enterprise developer program lets them have these developer certs and allows side loading on from not the app store. And it's designed to be used within a corporation on corporately owned devices. And so that's where that's where like as a corporation, I have a right to erase your phone. If I fire you and I don't want you taking data with you, I can erase your phone. No, you're jumping ahead. Oh it's not the enterprise developer program. The enterprise developer program oh, is you just as pushing a company. out pushing out your own apps. That's right. Yes. Okay. So you as a company can write an app that never goes to the app store but you can only deploy it to phones that are part of your enterprise developer program. So it's right. designed for internal private apps, which means that you can use iOS apps, or sorry, iOS devices to do proprietary things. You could use iOS devices for all sorts of really cool internal stuff. And Apple never sees it, so there's no danger of corporate espionage. And so, I mean, it's a really powerful program, but it's designed for use within an enterprise where the enterprise owns all the devices involved. So the fact that it comes with these amazing superpowers is a feature, not a bug. But if you take that same feature and use it, you basically get people who buy an app from you to install this developer profile. Well, now you, the developer, have this amazing superpower over a device you don't own. And Uh, that was a horrible abuse, and Apple clamped down on it. So that's why we, we had that a few weeks ago. Well, there's another technology that also has superpowers that's also designed for use within an organizational context. I mean, it doesn't have to be a business organization, but it has to be some sort of organization. And this is something called mobile device management or MDM. That's And that's what I was talking about, where you can yes. erase a, an employee's device or you can prohibit them from loading certain kinds of software or push out specific pieces of software onto their uh, phone. Yeah, it's very powerful. So you can use MDM to manage the device. Pretty much anything you can do in the settings app, you can do over MDM. And you also can remote wipe the device. So pretty much anything you can do through iCloud.com and anything you can do on the device itself, you can do through MDM pretty much. So within a corporate environment, this is immensely powerful. So one of the things you can do is sort of Active Directory style, you can add policies to the device, which says, if you go into settings and go to set passcode, the only option will be a 10 10 character password. You won't be allowed to set a pin. You could could enforce that. Mm In the days before every iPhone was encrypted, you could enforce encryption. You could basically say that it is impossible to turn off encryption on this phone. You can also use it to make the life of your employees way more convenient by pre-pushing out the, say, the exchange settings so that their phone just knows how to talk to the exchange server. You can push out, you can use MDM to push out your private apps through the enterprise developer program to, you know, to tie these two things together. You can also bulk buy from the iTunes store as a corporation and then use MDM to manage. You may have 60 sequential, uh, 60 licenses for an app and you can use MDM to say that on Tuesdays, these 60 iPads get this app, but on Wednesdays it's pulled off and it's given to these 60 iPhones instead. Hmm. But at no point are you ever going to have more than 60, so it's all good. I mean, you can do immensely powerful things with MDM, including remote wipe, which is very powerful. And you can also push down 
any sort of certificates and things. So you can intercept SSL if you want to. You can force all traffic through a proxy. You could force everything through a VPN. I mean, you have absolute superpower over the device because it's designed to be used by a corporation to manage corporately owned devices. Yeah, one other thing that uh, the company I worked for used it for was to basically any app in the App Store that had the word cloud in its description, (laughs) you couldn't install. Like, even if they said, we don't use the cloud. (laughs) Oh, Jesus. Well, I mean, it was okay. It was a better way of doing it where they didn't micromanage every single app you could load. They just said this category of thing can't exist. And that was a... It kind of it was a it was a broad brush, but it the it, the reduction in manpower t- it saved was worth it. I think so. A semi naive filter. Yeah, 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 yeah. I guess it does half the work, and then humans clean up the mess. Yeah, right. Silly. Instead of having somebody say yes, it's okay if you put Flappy Bird on your phone. You don't want to pay people <laughs> to figure that out. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, I, yeah, I see the logic. Yeah. Um. Now. If you take the same technology and you wrap it into an app aimed at consumers, you now have the perverse situation where some random app vendor now has superpowers over your phone, your phone, not corporately owned phone, your phone. And then you imagine that the apps using MDM were apps designed to enforce parental controls on children's iOS devices. And now you have the perverse situation where a company you're paying maybe a lot, maybe not a lot to has superpowers over an iPhone you own that your child uses. They can turn on the camera, they can access the camera roll, they can remote wipe the device, they can do anything on your child's iPhone. Hmm. Is that a sustainable situation that Apple should allow to continue to exist? I would argue, no, it is not. And what actually happened is quite some time ago, you know, we're talking less than a year, but more than more than six months, Apple became aware that the apps had started to use MDM in this way. And they contacted developers, gave them 30 days to stop using MDM if they weren't using it within a corporate environment. And corporate includes organizations. I say corporate, but like a university is considered, you know. Sure. It's not, I don't mean corporate as in business. I mean, organizational environment, shall we say. And they then began removing these apps from the App Store if they didn't comply. Can I complain right at this point? Before you sure. go a little bit further, this this is, up to here is most of what I have, um, have heard. I understand it better because of the way you've described it. The thing that nobody has said is why Apple allowed these applications to go into the App Store in the first place and only now has said, well, you got 30 days, get out. I mean, these, well, these have been around a while. Right. It didn't occur to anyone that you could abuse MDM like this. M- MDM is an API wow. that's officially documented and stuff. So okay. it wouldn't have shown up on a scan for really, for using non-standard APIs because it is a standard API. It's just a use no one had considered. So, but wait a minute. <laughs> so it, these, these companies used uh, a standard API that wasn't against any Apple rules, built a business, and then Apple said, you have 30 days to get out of doing this. Right. That, that, that's, yes. And Apple have done that repeatedly and continuously in the App Store as stuff evolves. I mean, we get cranky when companies don't respond to changing reality. Apple didn't foresee it. You could maybe argue they should have foreseen it. Yeah. But, I mean, they, I mean, if, if it said they the used right an MDM, if it said they used an MDM, 
I know what an MDM is for. You know what an MDM is for. Apple knows what an MDM is for. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't. And the developers know what it's for. Right. So Apple let them, let them get it approved and then let them build a business and then made them take it out. And that, I think, I think had they told them up front, you can't do this, I think I would be 100% Apple's camp. I'm cutting a couple of points off Apple's score for this, for letting them do it in the first place. Well, it's a lack of it's it's a lack of imagination on Apple's part not to see that this particular API should have gotten more scrutiny. It should have been one of those that raises a flag on an app review. If they use this API, it gets extra scrutiny. You know, but hey, hindsight's brilliant. The, the, like, I mean, Apple, I think sometimes is is in danger of sort of being too optimistic about human nature. Do we know that's why? Do we really know that they're they? didn't think anybody would abuse it that that seems un, that's not a, an assumption we can't know that for a fact but it, right. it's it's a case that it wasn't explicitly against the rules they discovered it themselves internally quite some time ago and have been addressing it quietly in the background without any hubbub for months now i thought They've you said they only gave them the 30 issue. days but they've been slowly going through contacting individual developers. This has been going on for months. This hasn't just happened snap. This has okay. been a process. It's okay. just we haven't heard it because it's been happening quietly, which I think is entirely appropriate. Yeah. I'm still giving them points right. off. <laughs> sure, for lack of imagination. But I think the way I look at this is imagine the mirror universe where they went, oh, dear. Well, we let them do it until now. So I guess we have to let them do it forever. No, that I didn't. I, no, 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 no. I didn't. Say, no, my mirror no, no, universe. I wasn't you were saying. No, 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 I wasn't saying you were saying this, right? I'm saying right. But the no, mirror I'm universe. I'm making the argument that Apple were damned if they do and damned if they don't. They're just a little bit less damned this way. They're just guilty of. Why did you make this mistake that you then proactively corrected yourself? I as opposed to if they I, didn't correct. My my mirror universe is. They knew what MDMs were for, and they had guidelines to say what you could do with an MDM. And if someone didn't obey those rules, they get their app rejected. That's what they do with everything else. That's my mirror universe. But those guidelines have have evolved many times throughout the App Store's life, because the day the App Store came out, people didn't under... No one could understand how everything would be used. Yeah, but MDM's been around for such a long time. I mean, I I think you're apologizing for them. I don't think they had the imagination to, like, if you make an API designed for a specific use available, I don't think you necessarily assume that it's going to be used in these weird ways. It's, I don't think it's unreason. It's, I mean, it's unimaginable, but it's not inconceivable. I mean, these APIs are for a specific thing, and, you know, to assume that they'll be used for what they're for isn't, it, it's human, it's not incompetent i disagree but it's okay we don't have to agree on this yeah anyway that's neither here nor there anyway because it doesn't really affect the the, the facts of the matter okay so here we are now they've rejected these apps they've thrown them out of the app store yes so basically they have very appropriately remedied a problem where there were where there was a serious privacy issue on iphone on kids iphones and they have protected their users and they, I, I would argue they had a moral duty to do that. They certainly had the right to do that, and they have done that. And then the New York Times waded in with both feet. They wrote an article which can be the kindest, I can say, is that it's clickbait. 
Ooh. It, it make it makes me sad that an institution I had as much I have as much respect for the New York Times could write something so journalistically flawed. They actually got a statement from Apple, excerpted it in such a way that it didn't reflect what Apple actually said anymore. And I can't think of a more cardinal sin than asking someone for comment and then removing from that comment the bits that don't agree with your party line. That's not journalism. So tell me what they said. What did they do? So basically, they asked Apple for a statement, and they omitted the bit of it where Apple explained why they did this. So what what did they then posted on their own website explaining the full story? So they gave a tiny little snippet, and Apple actually, Phil actually said, had they included our full statement, this would already be out there. So Apple put their full statement on their own website, which can't be excerpted by the New York Times. Hmm. To be honest, um, I'm not going to repeat what Rene Ritchie said. He, Rene Ritchie decided to take it apart from a journalistic point of view because he's a journalist. And the sins he outlined in the piece, with literally with quotation and verse, he says it's so much better than I can, so I've simply linked it in the show notes. But basically, he makes an argument that I accept that this is journalistically malpractice. So this is an article on iMore is where he did it? Yes. Okay. Now, he did his thing where he does it as a video, which is great, so I could listen while cycling, but he also writes it out completely as a post-post. It's the okay. same words, but you can have it read to you, you can watch it. So you can hear it, you can watch it, or you can read it. Take your pick. So was everybody else quoting from that New York Times article? Because when I first heard about this, all it was was Apple came out with their... Uh, method to control screen time for for people and that's when they turned around and uh discontinued all these apps that is exactly it that is the new york times article just being copy paste copy paste copy paste that that whole narrative about this being about stomping on competition as if somehow facetime is a moneymaker for apple and they're being anti-competitive basically they tried to make it out that it was as if they'd released apple music and then kicked spotify off the app store Hmm. and that just it just doesn't hold water And I mean, Apple have posted a detailed response and it reads very sensibly to me. And they point out that they allow competition absolutely all over the place in the app store. You can get loads of mail apps. You can get loads of music apps. They just just list all of these places where they allow people to compete with them all over the place. And it's like the only reason we're not allowing it here is simply because this is a privacy issue, not a competition issue. And the other thing is that there are APIs on the way to allow people to compete in this space as well, but those APIs aren't mature enough yet. Oh, okay. Hmm. Which, which is positive actually. And that's, that's not unusual, right? Apple will generally eat their own dog food for a year and then make it available as a more general API. We've seen that with stuff like Siri and we've seen many things throughout the history of iOS. And, but, but they also have a rule that says you can't duplicate something they've built into the, into the core applications. Like, right? Well, no, that was a rule. They used to not allow mail clients. That was a rule in the early days and they backtracked on that. Oh, did they? So oh, okay. They did. Yeah. Yeah. Because oh. initially there were no third party mail, mail apps. Hmm. Okay. No yeah. Good point. Apps. Good point. You definitely can do that. Yeah. So, they, I mean, like I said, the, the App Store has really evolved over time and it needs to because what the possibilities keep changing and also people's, they, they, people's imagination for what you can do is just so vast that there's no way Apple have thought of every good thing and every bad thing. And, you know, reality is always changing. So, uh, so Apple always adjusts and tweak and that seems appropriate to me. I think we get cranky when people like Facebook and Twitter don't tweak and allow 
Cambridge Analytica to happen and then react <laughs> as opposed to tweaking. And that, yeah. that makes us very cranky. So, so anyway, I have linked in the show notes the New York Times article so you can see what started the kerfuffle. Apple's official response so you can see what Apple have to say in the matter. Rene Ritchie's takedown on the journalism aspect of the New York Times piece. And what I think is actually a nice short TLDR summary from Dave Mark at The Loop. It's like, if you just want to, you know, someone explain it to me in few words, please, then the, the Loop article is actually great because it's nice and short. Good. So that takes on to medium number two, which is, I think, more... It's fascinating, but not in a happy way, I suppose. Um, it's just two stories that neither of them individually probably would have made a security medium, but the two taken together sort of said, you know something, let's pause. Let, let's let's take stock of where we are. So I've named this Understanding Today's Cybercrime Economy because one of my absolute favorite catchphrases is follow the money. If you want to understand something, you figure out who's, paying for what, <laughs> right? Who got paid by who for what? And that will pretty much tell you why things are happening. And so we had two stories here that um, that, that shed some light on the modern cybercrime economy that I think we need to take stock of. So the first one was kind of interesting. It was from Brian Krebs, and it points out that there's a, there has been a shift in credit card fraud, and it's because the U.S. are finally doing chip and pin. So before the U.S. finally decided that chip and pin was a thing, it was very easy to clone a credit card and make yourself a duplicate of someone's physical card with a magstripe. I mean, a magstripe printer is easy to get. And that's why you had breaches like the Target breach, where cyber criminals were attacking retail stores, where people come in with their cards, and if you put some software onto the little terminal that they use at the checkout, you could steal the information from the mag stripe, duplicate their card, and then do card present credit card fraud. Hmm. You'd basically just make a clone of the card, walk into a shop, buy some stuff, and bugger off. But with chip and pin, you can't do that because you can't clone a chip like that. They, they use one-time keys and stuff. They're cryptographically sane as opposed to being an ancient technology like a mag stripe. Now, my understanding, by the way, is that um, Samsung Pay does essentially that it fakes that it is the mag stripe no some samsung phones had that as an additional feature but samsung pay is also proper nfc are so, you sure yeah i am absolutely positively sure so, uh, hmm, i want to go samsung pay allowed okay. both on, on some hardware it allowed both it was a fallback it wasn't the only thing it was a fallback for terminals that didn't have nfc that you could hmm. also fake the mag stripe so you're right that they were faking the mag stripe but that was an also not an only okay so they weren't only faking the mag stripe they were also faking the mag stripe for americans because around the rest of the world faking the mag stripe would get you zero because i've always been telling people that that was not secure the way google pay is well it's kind of hard to tell how it's going to work in any specific case but it wasn't that it only did the max max stripe faking. Okay. Okay. Uh, but anyway, Google Pay, though, is an easier one. To, uh, do, do Samsung even still do Samsung Pay as a standalone thing? Oh, maybe they don't. But yeah, but Google Pay is good. Right? Google Pay is good, which is easy, yeah. right? Because it's NFC. It actually is the identical technology that Apple's using because yeah. it's actually not an Apple technology. It's a credit card industry technology. These one-time, pa- these one-time credit card. Anyway, that's not here and there. Okay. So Sorry. The move now is completely different. Now, 
what you want is card not present credit card fraud, which means what you need is the CVV2 number. So the move has completely changed from attacking physical stores like Target to attacking hotel chains, like we've been seeing in the, re- in the notable breaches over the last couple of months. Wait, what's that because got that to do with CVV you- numbers? Because for a hotel to process your credit card they've received over the phone, they need to take that number. Right. A hotel is a card not present transaction. So if you get your malware oh. in the middle there, okay. you have now copied everything you need for a card not present transaction. So now instead I of making it. a clone of a card, you're now going online to do your fraud. So the credit card fraud industry has completely changed because the US physical credit card infrastructure has changed. And the huh. price of card a card present details has collapsed in the massive online marketplace it's basically like a um an ebay for credit cards like where you can bid on credit card numbers the price has collapsed for the card present stuff because it's almost impossible to actually use a mag stripe anywhere Mm. and the price has gone through the roof on the card not present stuff so because you can sell a card not present details for more that's now what the cyber criminals are trying to do. So instead of trying to attack stores, they're trying to attack online things. And therefore, what we're seeing is different data breaches in different places because the cyber criminals have been motivated to do different things by the economy of how much can I sell this for? Oh, interesting. That's what you're saying back to the, where is the money flowing? Yeah. So I thought that was interesting. But what's actually, the one I really want to get on my soapbox about, which is why I'm doing it second, is um, a fascinating report on the very mature cybercrime industry that has grown up around password reuse. Password reuse has actually built an entire underground black market industry that is extremely mature with, you know, stores run as services. I I mean, very mature, very advanced malware as a service kind of stuff. It's really quite scary. So the way this works is... There are all of these password dumps all over the place. And so the bad guys take the usernames and passwords from these billions with a B leaked username and password combinations. And they write scripts to automate testing those usernames and passwords against other websites. And we, there's now a name for this. It's called password credential stuffing. Yeah. So you mentioned credential stuffing. Yeah, so basically it's you take the password, you take the data breaches, and you just try those combinations everywhere you can think of on the web that has value. So if you know that you can sell a Twitter account for $10, well, then you're going to just try lots and lots of stuff against Twitter until you find a combination. And then if you succeed, you're going to log out immediately so that it's not obvious you have successful credentials. You're not going to make it clear you've hacked the Twitter account. Instead, you're going to put those into a little Excel file or something. You're going to batch a few of them together. Then you're going to go to one of these marketplaces that exist on the dark web, and you're going to offer for sale Twitter accounts for the highest bidder. Someone's going to bid on them, and then they're going to do the actual whatever it is they need to do, whether they need to use it for identity theft or whatever, whatever nefariousness they have, they're going to pay for those credentials. And so Hmm. password stuffing is this, so credential stuffing is a massive industry to get username and password combinations for sale on these very mature underground marketplaces where they have like dispute resolution, like a full-blown eBay infrastructure with all of the services and all of the bells and whistles you would expect. Hmm. 
it interesting, is. interesting process. And and I like how you wrapped around this, the basis of what caused this to be more profitable than that, too. Yeah. So the bottom line here, right? And if you want to hear in great detail, Steve Gibson went into this whole, like the, the logistics of this very mature si- underground black market industry that's billions of dollars of money changing hands. So if you want to listen to Security Now episode 712, you, you get to hear it in great detail, or you can read the report if you're a reading kind of person and link in the show notes. Um, there's a lot there, but it's fascinating. But the bottom line is, in 2019, you cannot reuse passwords. Whether, like, whether you think they're not important or not doesn't matter. By reusing passwords, you are fueling a dangerous cybercrime underground that is funding organized criminals who get up to the most ghastly of stuff, like the mafia, basically. You're funding the mafia when you reuse passwords. That's how Hmm. they're making their money these days. They're not bootlegging moonshine. They're credential stuffing. That's that's where the money is, right? Yeah. If you're reusing passwords, A, you're putting yourself at risk, right? Because your accounts are going to get stolen if you reuse passwords. B, you're a menace to society. Hmm. You you are enabling massive cybercrime. So stop it. Get a password manager. <laughs> Be socially responsible. Okay, now I can get off my soapbox. <laughs> well, well, you do you... have a duty to be a good citizen on the internet. Right, and right. And part of that is not to reuse your passwords. What do you say to people who say, um, there's two, two categories that I'm not quite sure to answer. There are people mm-hmm. who have unique passwords and they have them written down in a notebook somewhere hidden in their house. That's not the dumbest thing on planet earth. Yeah. Yeah, it isn't. You don't, you're kind of like, yeah, but what are the chances they're really unique? I mean, how do you, do you, do you get some dice out and roll them to get the number and then some, a deck of cards and you know, <laughs> you're into the bear situation, right? There's so many people doing so much worse than you Yeah, that, you're probably going to get away with it just because there's so much fruit hanging below you. Mm. How about algorithm people, people who have an algorithm? An algorithm will probably protect you from this kind of automated credential stuffing because it's, it's mindless because there's so many billions of combinations to try that no one's putting the effort into figuring out your pattern. What it won't protect you from is if you are valuable because you are a CEO or mm. a chief financial officer or because you work in the accounts department. So it will protect you from this scattershot approach, but it will provide you no protection whatsoever from being targeted. So it's better, but if you work anywhere where you have value, be careful. The thing that worries me about the the uh, algorithm is they only have to get one of yours and then they have all of yours. Well, no, they need at least two to see the pattern, right? Well, yeah, but I mean, I used to use like the year followed by the name of the website. If you saw it, okay, you know, that's a very obvious pattern. Twenty eighteen Amazon, and I used an O for the for the in a zero for the okay. O. You know, you could pretty much figure out what all my other passwords were if I'd done that, right? You're right. There is a subset of of uh, algorithmic ones where you only need the one. I stand corrected. Yeah. I used to use algorithms, but they weren't... You'd need to see a few to figure out if there was a pattern. Okay. 
but I also stopped doing that quite quite some well like 10 or 12 years ago well, I saw the well, writing it, on the wall already well and it takes a lot of energy yes when when it turns out you know one password or last pass they don't take a lot of energy once you get in the hang of it just I not mean, that, that is hard. that is it really right get yourself a password manager that, that, that whose mental model aligns with your brain mm-hmm. and then you know do the really important ones immediately and then from then on by attrition you will soon deal with it yeah you know so yeah look i don't know how many times we can tell people not to reuse passwords but this really drove it home to me that this is a about protecting yourself and b an entire dark like mafia underworld is powered by this bad habit hmm. like billions of dollars of criminal money <laughs> you know i mean it's horrible yeah that's a whole different way to look at it hmm. yeah because i was only ever looking at it from the angle of but you're putting yourself in danger no 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 you're also enabling really bad stuff that's harming everyone on the planet because it's undermining our societies so you know think about everyone and yourself think about the children there we go we had to get there somehow <laughs> no soapbox is complete until you get this will somebody think of the children and then you can move on so we could have so gone hitler or the children one or the other okay facebook yeah exactly it's sort of re- reduction at hitlerium or will somebody think of the children one of yeah. those two will always happen <laughs> Uh, we've talked a lot about Facebook because Facebook have had a very eventful year and a half, two years. Mm-hmm. And we've had recent um, op-eds by Mark Zuckerberg. And apparently his podcast is actually very good. I haven't quite taken the time to sit <laughs> down and listen to Mark talk for an hour and a half. Apparently they're very long episodes. Mm-hmm. But I am going to. I haven't yet. Anyway. Take a bullet for Facebook? the rest of us. Okay. I'll take a bullet. I'll actually, I'll, I'll report back. It may be that they're very insightful, in which okay. case you may just ask me fine bar to give me the summary, yeah. <laughs> which may happen. Anyway, Facebook have a developer conference. Um, I presume the number changes every year. I presume this was the eighth one because it was called F8. I think it's always called F8, that, actually. What does that function key do? Does it have like a history like F2 was saved? Yeah, it? So, it means something Okay, I'm not Windows nerdy enough, is I think what that comes down to. Because on my keyboard, F8 means play pause, and I don't think that's what he meant. Yeah, let's see. Oh, it's the it's the Windows startup menu. Huh, okay. I don't get the Straight. joke then. Yeah, anyway, F8 conference was on, and so Mark Zuckerberg gave a speech. And he used that speech to unveil a new look for Facebook, which is actually quite clean and pretty and elegantly designed, which is nice. I'm never going to see it because I'm not a Facebook user, but it, it did actually oh, look nice. Sorry, I looked it up. Uh, the F8 name comes from Facebook's tradition of eight-hour hackathons. Ah, there we go. Okay. So it's an in-joke, not an yeah. F8 joke. Interesting. Okay. So as well as looking pretty, this new UI is designed to funnel people to incentivize people to start using Facebook differently. So it's designed to front load, to sort of to make the easiest thing to do in the interface to have private group chats or private one-on-one chats to make that the most prominent thing and to have that 
available to you easily in all the different pages in the interface. So really to use the interface design to encourage the use of private chat as opposed to public posting. And the words private, private, end-to-end encryption were all over uh, Mark's talk. And he repeatedly stressed that even we can't see what you're saying. Hmm. And so there's no way to say that this is a bad thing, right? I mean, <laughs> Where's my outrage? Yeah, I mean, you, you know, it, it, there's no reason to be outraged about this. This is not some sort of scandal that Facebook are adding these features and tweaking their UI to encourage you to use them. That's the good thing. But don't confuse the fact that it's a good thing with this being some sort of panacea that means that Facebook's entire business model has just changed. No, it hasn't. Of course it hasn't. Because otherwise their stock price would have gone through the floor. You don't actually need to know what people said to profile them. What you need to know is who, what, and when they were communicating. So you only need the metadata which is what they will always have as long as you're on their platform, right? They need, you know, who who is in your social graph? How often do you communicate with them? How long do you communicate with them? And particularly with these groups, that starts to really pad out your social graph. And these groups, of course, you also interact with brands on Facebook, not just with individual human beings. And of course, the Facebook like button is still following you everywhere you go online, knowing how long you read which news articles and, and, you know, which pages you flick right by so that they actually get almost no value from the content of your communication. (laughs) So they only let us have it be private because they don't actually need it. (laughs) It's even, yes. And you can be a little bit more cynical than that because what Facebook have discovered in the last 12 months is that if you allow postings to be public, you as the platform owner now have to moderate them. You have to employ human beings to police this public square. As Mark, So Mark used the analogy of Facebook is the public square and in the future we're going to be the sitting room. The public square needs police forces. Sitting room does not. Interesting. So Facebook do not have to police end-to-end encrypted channels they cannot see into. What are you going to police? Some random bits? Hmm. There's nothing for the moderators to do. So by encouraging people off public postings, they're actually making their own lives a lot easier. So, you know, the public postings were becoming a rod to beat their own back with. Well, get rid of them. They add almost no value. It's not the content that gives them the profiling. It's the information, the context around that. So encrypt them end to end, save us the bother moderating them, and we still get the track more than enough to do all of our advertising. It's genius. And and we can't figure out how to be outraged? no, I mean, it's still better, <laughs> but, it, you know, it they're still Facebook and it's still better. <laughs> <laughs> so there's no reason to jump up and down for joy. And wow, you you know, you know, Zuckerberg has had a coming to Jesus moment. He's had a conversion on the road to Damascus. No, he hasn't. At the same time, this is still better. I know I'm being all very level headed instead of outraged but yeah what kind of fun is this bart (laughs) i'm sorry i keep doing this to you so you know bear in mind facebook is still facebook but it is still nice that you can have end-to-end encryption on their platform and it's nice to see them pushing it and it's probably better for planet earth that these kind of sitting room style conversations are going to be what's happening much more so than the wall and basically these public postings where some stuff gets promoted and some stuff doesn't 
it actually it's from a profitability point of view outrage pays well so if you want to build your business around these kind of public postings you're actually incentivized to to make people angry and that's just not healthy so it's probably healthier for society as a whole to push people towards these more private intimate conversations than a medium that you know inevitably incentivizes anger right right now, another thing to say, it's a related story rather than necessarily being part of the same story, but it happened this week too. And I sort of thought, well, if we're going to talk about Facebook in detail, I should talk about the two aspects. So in terms of their money, nothing changes for the business model. They also had their earnings report and they have not had a good year from a PR point of view. Hmm. So you may have a theory which says that there's no need for government regulation because When people are angry, the stock price will go down and therefore Facebook will have to change their ways. That is a theory. That theory has now been debunked because Facebook's profits went up. They had a fantastic year, (laughs) the year of Cambridge Analytica. Why is that? It's because their customers are the advertisers. The advertisers like it when you invade people's privacy. So they thought this was a great year. (laughs) So they bought more? Because like, oh, this could be awesome. Yeah. Follow the money. Right? It is in the advertiser's best interest that Facebook know as much about all of their users as possible. So there's no financial incentive for Facebook to actually value privacy because that's not the product. Product they sell is your profile and your attention. And your profile makes your attention valuable. The two you know, by profiling you, they can be sure to sell the attention of people who actually care, which is more valuable than the attention of people who don't give a flying fig about your particular product. Right, right. So the, the, and and the whole value proposition is about the profile. You know, we, we get away from this, but in reality, I would like to see ads about yarn and crochet hooks, and you would probably like to see ads about bicycle helmets. Yeah, and, I mean, and, if I need to see ads, then yes, that is exactly correct. Right. And so that's what we want, but it's how you get there. Yeah. And I mean, there are two ways of getting there, as I keep saying, right? So one way to get there is to tailor your advertising to the place the person is on the internet. So if I am at a website for cycling enthusiasts, I think it doesn't take a genius to figure out that maybe you should advertise some cycling stuff at me. Mm-hmm. You don't right. have to spy on me. You can analyze the web page on which the ad is appearing and target the ad at the content on the web page, not at the person doing the reading. You know, so they're the two business models, which is why you can have someone like DuckDuckGo, who is a for-profit company, but they sell ads based on what the person is looking for, not based on who the person is. But anyway, right. it's a whole other you know, conversation. The bottom line is you cannot rely on the market to fix Facebook from a privacy point of view because the market's incentives are not aligned with yours because you, the user, are not the customer. You're the product. So then the economics just they fall the money. right into place, right? right. Yeah. Just follow the money. I feel like I should be, Planet Money should take me on. (laughs) That podcast has really helped me to look at the world. Anyway, so that brings us on to regular old notable news. Um, You can delete the heading notable security updates because it has no entries this month. Not not even the last minute stories. Nothing nothing made it into notable security updates in the last few weeks. 
It's crazy. Now I've stopped doing the boring ones like yeah. Firefox has all updated itself behind your back. <laughs> don't need to know anymore. Exactly. We just don't need to know. And so I've stopped wasting time on the show about those kind of updates. So there's nothing of note. So notable news. There are definitely things of note here. Um, so this whole concept of Russia having a private internet has gone another step closer with the sovereign internet bill having been passed. Hmm. This is fascinating on all sorts of levels because the official aim of this operation, this thing, is to make it so that if someone does a cyber attack against Russia, their internet will continue to work. So they're going to have a whole bunch of infrastructure in place, including a private copy of the DNS system, so that they can basically have their internet disconnected from the internet and still behave like the internet. To make that possible, they have to route all of the ISPs through a central regulator. And so the other advantage is that now ISPs don't have to implement the the, uh, blocks the government want to implement because the government can do it for themselves. Oh. Isn't that convenient? Huh. So, yeah. Anyway, it's 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 fascinating. We need to find the new pun. So the Great Firewall of China is funny because, you know, China is famous for a great big wall. Right. So we need to find some sort of pu- Russian pun because this is the Russian equivalent of the Great Firewall of China. Yeah. It's, it's impressive from a technological point of view. In- Whether or not it will actually work is yet to be seen, but from a, you know, lily-livered, hippie, freedom-loving kind of point of view, it's scary as old Jesus. Hmm. Is there anything ISPs can do if that goes into place to say, okay, we're giving you nothing? No, because the only way the ISP can get the internet is through the government. The government have basically made themselves the only way the the ISP gets to the internet. Oh, okay. Well, okay. I'm talking, I I guess I said it backwards, but I mean, I'm thinking about like, okay, podfeed.com, then Russia, you don't get to have podfeed.com. There's nothing I can do to cause that. There there isn't. And actually, if if Russia were genuinely cut off the internet, you would lose podfeed.com. Because Podfeed.com oh, is but hosted within Russia. You're, so what right, but you're saying there's Russia no internet up. that starts anywhere. They, they're talking about an internet that is only within Russia. Nothing from the outside comes in? Nothing at all. So what they're, what they're talking about is that in the worst case scenario, when there's an attack, they would lose the internet that isn't within Russia, but they would continue to have a fully functional, isolated island of all the Russian stuff. Which isn't true in America right now, right? If someone did a serious attack on America's infrastructure, without the internet, which is a very big global thing, you wouldn't have only American sites still working. You would just have a giant big heap of a mess. So Russia wanted to get to a place where you can cut them off from the world, but you can't stop their internal internet working. Hmm. I mean, it's not unreasonable. The fact that it also gives them the ability to completely police the internet and control it completely is, you know... It's not an accident, right? Yeah. It's, it's genius. It's an absolute genius. Using defense as an excuse for an extremely invasive police state apparatus. Hmm. Extremely invasive. Effectively, the whole country's been run through the government VPN servers. That's how you can think about it. Anyway, it's, it's fascinating in a scary kind of way that makes me glad I don't live there. Yeah. Um, something that will make a lot of people happy. Um, 
it is a running joke that when you work in a corporation that has a Microsoft infrastructure and where the corporate IT have left the default policies in place, you're forced to change your password every 60 bloody days. And then you, I think there's five of them remembered. So everyone has six passwords they cycle through. It adds nothing to security. It's actually been proven in research studies to make security worse because it force, it encourages people to stick post-it notes and stuff like that around the place. So basically, it doesn't make anyone any safer. All it does is make people cranky and possibly less secure. But it's been a default since like Windows 3.11 for works groups or something ridiculous like that. Well, good news. As of spring 2019, as in the spring update for, for Windows 10 and Windows Server, it's gone as the default policy within Windows. That's fantastic. There was a study that came out a while ago, I remember a year or two ago, you telling us about it, that mm-hmm. uh, basically went through and said, no, we have empirical proof that making people change their password makes them less secure. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, since I saw that study, I have been so cranky about this default. And now a lot of places have started to change the default, but the, the tyranny of the default still has a large effect. There's a lot of places just take what comes out of the box. You know, Microsoft server for small business, turn it on. There we go. We now have a domain. <laughs> so it's this is good. Um, surprising no one is how I've titled this. Some security researchers decided to figure out that wh- whether or not if someone sells you a box that promises you free cable and they charge you like $20 for it, is that possibly in some way financed by malware? Shock and or horror, yes, it is. <laughs> so don't steal cable because the chances are you're getting, well, you're getting what you paid for, as in you're getting completely and utterly abused. But, you know, there we go. Um, the next, I got to use our fire, fire, our, our fire extinguisher emoji for the first time. Oh, goody. That's new in the latest emoji spec. So that's very exciting to all of us. It is. And I now have a text expander snippet for the fire extinguisher. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Uh, So there was a lot of hyperventilating in the media about a piece of proof of concept malware named Extra Pulsar, and it was being described as undetectable. So therefore, it was this uber dangerous malware because you couldn't detect it and no virus scanner could protect you from it. Well, the good news is that's hogwash. Oh, good. Explained extremely well by the people over in Sophos on their naked security blog. It's like, yeah, we make antivirus, and here's five ways we can detect this. It's not just one way they can detect them. They can detect them like five ways and they lay them out in bullet points. Anyway, it's still interesting because it's a novel and interesting piece of malware. So it's technically fascinating. And I would encourage any of our listeners who are, you know, who enjoy nice technical stuff, elegant engineering, read the Naked Security article. They do their usual thing of being very eloquent about laying out complicated technical stuff. It's a great read. But anyway, the short version is Double Pulsar was one of the pieces of malware leaked in the NSA data breach, or the NSA data dump, really. And this extra Pulsar takes that idea and takes it to, to turns it up to 11 in a very clever way that sort of uses Windows' own internal architecture against itself. It, it's beautifully engineered malware, but it is absolutely detectable. Oh, okay. It just doesn't show up as a separate process. Okay, great. But that doesn't mean it's undetectable. It just means it won't show up in the list when you do control alt delete show processes. <laughs> that doesn't make it undetectable. It just makes it not a process. So that's yeah, anyway. Um 
Security researchers are warning people that the Nokia 9 smartphone, which has a fingerprint reader under the screen, has a serious problem with said fingerprint reader. The thing, in order to make it not give lots and lots of false negatives, it now gives an absolute metric bleep ton of false positives. (laughs) Pretty much anything vaguely finger-shaped will unlock that phone. Including chewing gum packets, apparently, and no one's quite sure why oh the texture gosh. of a chewing gum packet seems to be enough to trick it. But there's videos of people. Did doing they even it. try? Well, basically, they had to do a software update because everyone was complaining the bloody phone wouldn't unlock, so they had to turn down the accuracy, and they may have turned the dial too far. <laughs> you know what? Doing these or things the well is, is hard. Yeah. I think the problem is the sensor isn't capable of doing its job. And so the choice is either no one gets into their phone or everyone gets into their phone. Yeah. The advice from naked security is use a pin. Okay. Just give up on the sensor. It's not going to do it for you. We have two related stories from the US court system. And th- th- this is sort of an ongoing issue of our times, really, that the US courts and there's not only an issue in the US, but it really makes the news in the US because so many major tech companies are headquartered in the US. But the US courts are trying to apply laws written in the day, you know, literally laws written with quill and ink mm-hmm. to a modern world of smartphones that are effectively external bits of our brain and biometric sensors. And is is that, you know, testimony or not? And how does that apply to the Fifth Amendment? And how does the Fourth Amendment come into things? Like, it's not easy. And so we have two notable news stories related to this ongoing battle where the law is trying to understand how to apply itself to modern tech. So on the one hand, we have a judge who rules that cops absolutely need to have a warrant for location history and for phone pinging. So basically figuring out where a phone is right now, you need a warrant for that, says one judge, which I obviously think, good judge. (laughs) On the other hand... The ping pong of opinions on whether or not your fingerprint is testimony or not punged the other way. And uh, there's now a warrant was issued which expressly gave police permission to force someone's finger onto a fingerprint scanner to force unlock their phone, which opens up the Fifth Amendment question again. So we've had different courts in different parts of the U.S. come to diametrically opposed views on this Fifth Amendment question. So it seems ever more inevitable that this has to make its way up to the Supreme Court because the courts below the Supreme Court have ruled every which way you can think of on this issue. So, I, you know, this is an ongoing difficulty within the legal system where they're trying to grapple with these difficult questions. Hmm. Google have rolled out a new feature. So we're into the happy bit of the news. Google are rolling out a new feature where you can choose in the uh, location tracking section of your privacy settings, you can choose to have your location information auto-deleted after a couple of, I think it's three months. Oh, that's cool. It is cool. And so I would recommend that people go in there and turn that on because that gives you an interesting halfway house where you still get a lot of the advantages of Google knowing your your routine and your habit, and it's not without advantages. It gives a lot of convenience to you, the end user. But it gives you a different balance between the privacy concerns about having your location history forever and your location history for never. You know, right, and I think right. Like, you want sort of, maps to work. <laughs> no, okay, maps doesn't need history. Maps needs the instantaneous location. 
right? You don't need any history whatsoever for maps to work. Okay. But you, but you do need history for Google's AI to be able to make useful suggestions to you. Because the suggestion you get by extrapolating the past into the future. So you're just saying this past, just is just going to shorten the length of time they save the data on you? Yes, hmm. exactly. Which gives you an interesting halfway house where you get to have much more privacy than they keep it forever. And yet retain most of the convenience of Google's AI. So what is it, Google Now? Or what is it they call their thing where it's trying to be helpful? And it's generally more successful at being helpful than, than, than S-Lady. Is it Google Now? Um, boy, you know, Google changes everything so often. It's hard to say. Yeah, and I'm really not in that e- ecosystem. So whatever their cool AI thing is that people love so much, it's powered by the fact that they have some history on you. So this is a really nice way to have some history, but not all the history. So, you know, I am not. I don't think I would make the trade-off. I think I would keep my setting as it is now. In fact, I think I am keeping my setting as it is now, which is no, don't save my location history. But I can also see this being a really reasonable compromise for people who do want some of the convenience, but at the same time do want some of their privacy too. So it's just a nice development. So I think, you know, Google should be congratulated for giving people this sort of third way. And we talked last time about the UK government working on all sorts of uh, regulations for dealing with modern problems, like uh, the toxicity on Twitter and stuff. Uh, Another proposal has gone out for public consultation, uh, this time to tackle IoT security. Oh. And this, I mean, the the law contains more than just this, but the most interesting part of the law is they're considering introducing a mandatory labeling scheme. And so to sell an IoT device, you would have to stick one of these labels on it, which is similar. In the UK, they have extremely good food labeling. One One of the reasons I shop in... Uh, the Irish branch of a UK supermarket called Tesco is because Tesco will be UK law on food labeling. Oh. And every food product has to have a bunch of badges on the front, which list how much fat, sugar, salt, etc. is in it. And they're color coded. Green means low, yellow means... And red so you means don't have to look and go, well, I don't know how many grams of sugar is bad. Exactly. So hmm. you can actually just look at it and go, three greens. Good to know. Or three reds. Okay, back away, right? You can make an informed decision. So the same concept. So rather than saying, thou musteth provide security updates for blah years, what they're doing instead is saying, you have to put on a label how many years you will support this device. So then you can wander into the shop and go, well, I can buy this smart speaker with one year of security updates for $20 and this one with five years for $50. Actually, I think the $50 is better value. Now, that's interesting. They they must be able to do all kinds of caveats, like if we go out of business, if we get sold, you know, all all offers are null and void. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously there will be, once a company goes out of business, that's it, right? They don't exist anymore, so they can't be penalized under the law. So technically, they'll be breaking the law by having died, right? It's it's like (laughs) you can enter into a contract that says you will pay something back over five years, and if you die the next day, you have technically broken the contact. You're also dead. <laughs> right? So, yeah. Okay. You know, it's like, how do you punish something that doesn't exist anymore? It's kind of a mute, moot, moot point. Not a mute point, a moot point. Anyway. <laughs> or as Joey says uh, in Friends, a moo point. A moo point. <laughs> yeah. It's a cow. 
Yes. I mean, there's there's more on these labels than that, but the one that really caught my eye in that labeling was the concept of having an explicit lifetime for security updates on the mm-hmm. box. So you can actually stand there in the store and compare. Because it's something that you, when you're considering Android devices, something you you have to research, you have to do work. Wouldn't it be so much nicer if it just said it on the box? Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm trying to think what else what else would be on there that could be interesting. Okay, so they also define some basic standards. And so you can get a tick box that says you meet basic requirements if you do a few simple things. Okay. And so the idea would be that you would end up with a simple sort of tick box and the number of years support. Okay. And so if you don't meet the basic things, you cannot have the tick box. Oh, yeah. So, so the, it wouldn't it's, be it's, it's fully detailed. Stage. I mean, there's two links in the show notes because they each sort of focus in on different things. We have a Mac Observer article and a Naked Security article. And so I think, you know, if people are interested in this, I think I would say have a read of those two. But the basic idea is that rather than saying this is the law and you must do this, instead we're just going to have a labeling system where you just must be honest. And then customers can choose for a cheap product that's not very secure or a more expensive product that is secure. And the hope is that people will care. Yeah. That's neat. I like it. Yeah, it's an interesting approach. So anyway, so that's that's the end of our notable news. Um, a bunch of stuff and suggested reading. So I will just highlight a few that I think people may want to go read. But of course, I'll leave it to you to read whatever you want to read yourselves. Uh, the first thing to say is that in PSA's tips and advice, if you are an Android user, I think you need to read the first of these because some very clever web developers have found a way of tricking a bunch of different browsers on iOS into putting up a fake address bar. So that makes phishing way, way easier if you get to have your own address bar that shows a padlock. Wait, you said Android and then you said iOS. I lost you. Uh, okay, pretend I said Android all the time. <laughs> okay, okay. want to make yeah, sure I'm following. Wow, that's not good. There's a, yeah. On iOS, what happens when you try to do this is you get two menu bars and the illusion is rather shattered. Oh, okay. Okay. But on Android, it'll look like the real one. It'll look like the real one. The real one won't come back. Based on what we've seen from Google and Chrome about Chrome lately, I'm sorry, Google and Android, uh, I would expect to see this foiled quickly by them. I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. I I have the same expectation. Every reason to believe. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, there's uh, some other stuff in there that may be useful. Uh, nice stuff from Rennie Ritchie, you know, natural disasters, phone, app, and tech tips to help you survive, keeping your data safe on traveling, how to reset the advertising identifier on your Mac, iOS, or Apple TV. Um, in terms of notable breaches, it's obviously mostly bad news, but one that I think anyone living in the US should probably familiarize themselves with is this story about the mystery database containing 80 million re- records on 80 million US households. Why is it a mystery? Well, it's an insecure, it's an unsecured database sitting on an IP address in Microsoft's cloud. And the security researchers were, found it. And it's unsecured, so they could just read it. So they know the data's in there. What they don't know is who owns it. Oh. Someone has lost or failed to secure a massive database of an awful lot of sensitive information. But we don't know who the culprit is. They don't know who owns that IP address? Or they know it's in Microsoft's cloud. So so they haven't closed it down? So Microsoft have taken it down. Oh, they have? Okay. 
and Microsoft say they have contacted the owner. Okay. But we do not oh, know Oh, we who... don't know who did the breach. No, we breach. don't know whose data it is. Microsoft, no, we don't. Uh, well, if it was European Union data, they would have to know, but since they're in the they US, they would have to they notify don't. the victims, yeah. which is half of America, clearly half the households in America. Jeez. Yeah. Huh. So that one is kind of fascinating because everyone's trying to figure out whose data it is based on what's in the data because it's only people over 40 and they're interested in household income, but not in how many kids you have. And it's sort of like, who would want mm. to know these specific things is what everyone's trying to figure out. It's kind of a fun detective game and we may get the answer someday. Realtors. But as of right now, it's purely a mystery. Realtors. <laughs> Homeowner status, map theory. coordinates. Yeah, that is a theory. So Blind anyway, it, it's... it's mm fascinating fun sort of mystery game in terms of news and suggested reading um a lot of this is not happy making news um i think of note is um the aclu managed to get sort of force u.s customs and border patrol onto the record about exactly what their policies are about search and seizure of electronic devices at the u.s border and the answer is their agents are told you can search anyone for any reason you care to pull out of your proverbial pretty much. Oh. It's kind of scary. Uh, the Wall Street Journal then had a very, very interesting uh, report that the NSA have asked the White House to stop call data, re- there's basically this uh, so-called CD or, or call data records phone surveillance program because apparently the cost of surveilling all the Americans' phone calls does not justify the intelligence value provided by spying on all these Americans. (laughs) So it's interesting that the NSA have been asking to be allowed to stop spying on Americans, which is technically extra constitutional. So, you know, one would hope that having having it been leaked, maybe the White House would say yes. But we shall see. Uh, And then... Kind of a this one is in suggested reading for the reason that I did I cannot find the silver cloud. There is a peer-to-peer API used by lots and lots of different IoT products. It's basically software as a service that's incorporated into these devices. It has a fundamental design flaw that is so catastrophic it's probably unfixable, which basically means that if you own any of these IoT devices, you can either throw them in the bin or live with the fact that they're completely insecure. Pick one. Oh. Yeah. Uh, opinion and analysis, on the other hand. Wait, is, so we have to follow your uh, your the link to Krebs on security to see which IoT products are affected by that? Yes, you do. And I couldn't really figure out much of it. So I can sort of say this is a really serious thing, but I don't have anything useful to add. So suggested reading it is. Okay. Uh, opinion and analysis, on the other hand, is suggested reading for a whole other reason. Is because I think this is fascinating. So the first one that really caught my eye is an article from Ars Technica, which sort of throw. I don't know if you've been following this Huawei story at all. A little bit. But there, was, there was a whole big hoopla about apparently Huawei having put a back door into network equipment they sold to Vodafone Italy. That is an extremely stretched reading of reality. There were some software bugs which were patched. There are bugs in almost every piece of software. Calling a bug a backdoor means you need to prove intent. You need to prove that it was actually put there maliciously 
not that it was software with a bug, right? You don't get to call every piece of software with a bug from a company you don't like a backdoor. That's not fair. And they provided absolutely no evidence this was anything other than a bug, and it was patched quickly and promptly. So, yeah, it's conceivable it might have been an intentional bug, but you can't call it one without evidence. So anyway, the Irish Technica do a deep dive into this whole Huawei and Vodafone Italy story, and basically there's, as far as I can see, there doesn't seem to be a there there. Or if there is, no one has actually presented any evidence. They've just jumped straight to, here's the outcome we want. Uh, so again, I, th- I found it a fascinating read. Interesting. Something which is coming down the road, and we'll focus on it in detail as a security medium when it actually happens, but Apple are moving towards something called notarization becoming compulsory for apps on the Mac. If you want to sneak ahead, there's a really good breakdown of it from the Mac Observer where they sort of explain the point of notarization and what advantages it has. Um, and so if you want to read ahead, then have a read of that article. How soon is that coming? Is that in the next version of the OS, Mac OS? It is rumored to be. Huh. But until WWDC, that's all it is. Oh, okay. Right. This is uh, from the articles from John Martellaro. He knows what he's talking about. He does know what he's talking about. It's a good article. Okay. Um, and then the last one is from Recode, who also know what they're doing. Um, and it's an exclusive insider look at Twitter's works to basic, the things Twitter are doing to try to clean up their platform. And it kind of revolves around trying to find a way of measuring health as in how healthy is our ecosystem? Is it toxic or is it healthy? And that's hmm. not an easy metric to get. It's kind of, you is yourself it? have said it many times. If you want to change something, you have to figure out how to measure it. So the Twitter are absolutely, it's a fascinating insight into their attempts to get a handle on how do we measure our success at making this platform a less toxic place? Well, yeah, and one, we one, one woman's toxic is another woman's not toxic, right? <laughs> so we have yeah. different tolerances for toxicity. Exactly. So it's a very difficult metric to wrap your, you know, so it's a long article. Um, there's a lot of meat to it because it's a difficult topic, but I found that absolutely fascinating. <laughs> and it contrasts to me that to see this kind of deep thinking, and I've, have, I've listened to some interesting interviews with uh, Jack Dorsey on this, and I didn't get the impression he was a robot saying what he thought we wanted to hear. I got the impression he was a thoughtful and intelligent man trying his best to deal with a difficult problem. And so this article was a very interesting complement to that long interview he did with Recode on Kara Swisher's podcast, actually. Oh, cool. So, yeah, definitely, yeah. definitely a fun read. Uh, then Propeller Beanie Territory. <laughs> These are always fun if you're our kind of people. Um, Wonderful scientist people have figured out a way to store data in proteins. So you could in- theoretically fit a library's worth of books into a teaspoon of protein. Oh, and wow. it needs zero electricity to store this data for centuries. What? Yeah. So you secure oh. lasting archival storage. That's small and portable. <laughs> I'm just, it's I'm cool. just, I'm just picturing a bunch of spice bottles with. Well, here's the Library of Congress, <laughs> 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 and it's a little bitty library bottle, a little bitty uh, spice bottle, right? Yeah, like the one you'd use for saffron or something that costs right. a pretty fortune. Yeah. Or, or the salt shaker they give you on an airplane in first class, right? That carries like eight grains. <laughs> wow, have a token salt. Yeah. How how practical is it to do from a 
I mean... Oh, okay, so we've gotten to the point of we can make this work in a lab. So okay. it's gone from being a science problem, and now they're starting the engineering problem. That's so awesome. I love that. That's my favorite yeah. thing you've told us today. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was fascinating, because they've been trying to use DNA, and they've been making some progress on DNA, but this is looking a lot more promising. Uh, also then, Apple have yet again, or are yet again, because this is in beta versions of iOS and macOS, but they're tweaking their intelligent tracking, their intelligent tracking protection yet again to make it even harder for people to use tracking cookies. Uh, and yet to do so without breaking things that legitimately need third-party cookies to function. So again, they're tweaking how they deal with cookies. I found that a fascinating read, but it's very low-down nerdy stuff. Basically, Apple are continuing to do cool innovations, and assuming it makes it from the beta into the real next release, I think that's going to be a nice thing you know, to talk about when it becomes real. But for now, it's just in beta, so it's in oh, better okay. territory. All right. So let me cleanse your palate. Um, the first one is a video that I know you have described to me what's in this video, but I don't think I'd ever seen it. Oh. I've heard you tell it, but I don't know if I'd ever seen it. It's Grace Hopper standing in front of a classroom of university students of some sort, by the looks of it, probably in a military academy. I've seen quite a few uniforms. Yeah, she's, she's a rear admiral. Yeah, she's in uniform herself. And yeah. And she's handing out to the class nanoseconds. She has a handful of them and everyone gets to have a nanosecond, which sounds perverse, but you have to watch the video because a nanosecond, given the fact that electricity travels at the speed of light, is a distance because the speed of light is constant. Right. right. And it, 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 it's only two minutes. It's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. I, oh, what I wouldn't give to have someone like her teaching computer science today, oh. it would do so much good for the world. Absolutely. She was just, she was so cool. There, There's also a great, um, she was on Letterman once. And if you look that up, just look up Grace Hopper Letterman. And she, she talks a little bit about the nanosecond. I think she might've brought a nanosecond with her to give to him. And she developed it as a way to try to explain to her bosses why communication on the moon might take a second to get back to us. Because <laughs> you know? like, why can't we talk right away? Why does it take so long for me to talk to a satellite? And so actually takes out her nanosecond and mom's going, see this? There's a lot of these between here and orbit. <laughs> and she also brings into the class, which she says, there's not one for each of you because it's much too heavy, but here's a millisecond. <laughs> see how much different the millisecond is to the nanosecond? Right, right. The millisecond is this roll of cable. <laughs> I love it. So it's, it's, it's wonderful. Two, two, two minutes, I highly recommend it. And then my other two palate cleansers are audio. So we have a video and two audio. There are podcast recommendations. So a podcast I listen to a lot from the BBC World Service. It's a weekly hour-long podcast. It's called The Real Story. And it's one of those rare long-form thoughtful discussions where you get a panel of people who are allowed to finish their sentence before they're interrupted. Um, so you have people <laughs> with very diverse points of view actually allowed to speak and articulate their points before they're shouted down, um, which is fascinating in the modern world of cable TV where it's all about shouty, shouty. And these are all, they're, they're always politically relevant topics. And so 99% of the time, there's no overlap between the real story and this podcast. Oh, neat. But last weekend is different. 
Last weekend, the topic they really got stuck into was the effect of social media on elections around the world. So yes, there is mention of America, because obviously, how could you not? But this is not about 2016. This is about the broader question, and it focuses around India in their current election, America in their previous election, and the big question is, and Brexit as well, of course. And the big question is, what's going to happen in India this year and in America next year? Fascinating discussion. Hmm. And I say, if you like the format, and if you enjoy thoughtful analytics of political questions, and I don't mean party political, I mean policy political questions, then you may enjoy the rest of that podcast series. But it's not usually tech focused, but it it is in this one. Okay, interesting. And the last recommendation I have is an episode of Planet Money, which I adore, as I've made clear many times. But it's the history, the very interesting history of how we, how the CAPTCHA came to be. Oh. And the economics of the CAPTCHA. And how it's only getting more annoying over time with show me a stoplight. (laughs) Well, actually, it's getting less annoying because you probably don't realize that ReCAPTCHA 3 is all over the place, but it has no user interface. You don't see ReCAPTCHA 3. Uh, Well, I get that. I'm a robot. Show me a crosswalk. uh, traffic yeah, light a bicycle or a, a storefront and it's like yeah. i don't know do you think that's a storefront or is that a bank <laughs> yeah well that's recapture too which is an improvement on the squiggly letters yeah i suppose i don't know it takes anyway, me less time to type the letters than it does to sit there going i don't know is that a bank or a storefront yeah i tend not to think about them too much because most of mostly what they're looking for in recapture too is how you move the mouse yeah so I just sort of behave like a human, and if I get a oh few no wrong, no no, if you get a few wrong, they they send you another one. You got right, but they're really interested in how you interact, not really in the answers you give. Yeah, they should have a microphone listening to what I say. But anyway, going <laughs> <laughs> would it need a beep filter, perhaps? Possibly. <laughs> so anyway, that that's it. Um, I've also thrown a little note, which I'm going to have in the bottom of every show note from now on, explaining to people my little subtlety within the show notes. When a link in the show notes, the text describing the link and the link are all part of the link. That means I copied and pasted the actual title of the story. And when the text describing the story is not a link, it means it's me, Bart, typing. Yeah, so very good. A note at the bottom explaining the difference. So sometimes it's my interpretation and sometimes it's the headline from the website. And now you know how to tell the difference. Very good. Very good. I think you've mentioned it, but I like that you've just put that into your standard format now. Yeah, it's in my text expander snippet. So, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, Bart. Well, this was great. This was really, really interesting. I enjoyed it, too. Excellent. I had great fun writing these show notes, actually. Some weeks it feels like a chore, but I really got stuck into some of these. So I, I had great fun, too. Good. All right. Well, we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. Talk to you in a couple of weeks. And until then, of course, you know that you should stay patched and stay secure. Well, nobody's going to complain that that show was too short, but we are going to wind things up for this week. Do not forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, suggestions. How can you do that? You can email me at allison at podfeet.com. And of course, if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at podfeet. Remember, anything you're looking for on podfeet starts with podfeet.com slash whatever it is. Looking for Patreon? Podfeet.com slash Patreon. Want to join our Facebook group? Podfeet.com slash Facebook. Want to join our Slack community? Podfeet.com slash Slack. Want to join the live chat room? Podfeet.com slash chat. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, like Haley did after having been gone for quite a while, 
head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nacilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.